The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, follow your dreams, except that one where you're naked at work. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 361 with guest Jeff Richter, recorded live Wednesday, June 25th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who stopped taking his ginkgo biloba, because he can't remember where he left it, Carl Franklin. Thank you, thank you very much. Welcome to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. I'm your host. Richard Campbell will be with us in just a minute. Uh, he's on vacation in the Galapagos Islands, but uh, he did join us for the interview. Coming right up here, I'm just going to roll right into Better Know Framework. And today's class is another in the System Collections generic namespace. It's the Synchronized Collection of T generic class, which implements an iList of T, but it's thread safe. So always a problem with collections and threads especially uh, trying to access those collections from different threads. So you can get a synchronized collection so that every time you access it, it's a thread-safe operation. Synchronized collection of T. Know it, love it, learn it. Okay. Uh, for email today, um, well, you remember in, in the last episode, uh, somebody on the show said some disparaging remarks about Toowoomba which is in Australia. So it turns out that uh, Toowoomba, Toowoomba-ins, as they're known, I guess, speak back and try to defend their homestead. This uh, two, two emails today, one from Malcolm Sheridan. He says, hi, Carl and Richard. As a longtime listener to your show, I look forward to see what new content you guys will talk about each week. So when I tuned in to listen to show 360 with Ted Neward and Joel Pobar, I, again, was not disappointed, but with 15 minutes to go, Joel started bagging Toowoomba. That is my hometown, and I thought I should stand up for it. It may not be New York City, but it's not as bad as Joel was making out. Toowoomba has had its share of people come from nowhere and become a success. Its most famous residents are actor Jeffrey Rush and former international rugby player Tim Horan. I myself was born in Toowoomba and now am a successful .NET consultant in Melbourne. Give Toowoomba a break. Keep up the good work with .NET Rocks, Mondays, Hansel Minutes, and Run As Radio, and get your new London and Canadian butts down here to Tech at Australia one day. Cheers, Malcolm Sheridan. Malcolm, what can we say? We will uh, give Joel Polbar 40 lashes with a wet noodle. Uh, Chris Donges says, How can Toowoomba be a backwater? Toowoomba has no water. Its dams are at 10% and keep going down. Our water levels are so low, there was a vote on whether we should drink poo, and 40% said yes. <laughs> Can Toowoomba have an apology, please? <laughs> Chris Donges, a .NET developer in Toowoomba. 
man, Joel's going to have to answer for his sins against humanity, against two woombans. Anyway, guys, we'll be sending you a .NET Rocks mug. Anyway, uh, we talk a little bit on the show about the .NET tour that is going on in New York City. If you uh, want to move to Manhattan and live there rent-free for a year and work with some really interesting people, uh, if you're a .NET developer, freewheeling, or you want to go to Dubai, there's job opportunities in Dubai also, go to shrinkster.com slash kh6 and you'll learn about the New York City tour. If you're interested in uh, jobs in Dubai for .NET developers, send an email to carl at franklins.net. Also, if you're interested in surface development, there's opportunities here in New York uh, for surface developers. Also, send an email to carl at franklins.net, and I'll pass it on. Uh, Richard, our guest today is Jeff Richter. He's been on the show before. He's a consultant in Microsoft, probably one of the oldest, longest running, not oldest, but longest running consultants <laughs> at Microsoft, right? About 18 years or so, yeah. Uh-huh. Jeff has uh, worked on the Windows operating system extensively. He's responsible for the run-as capability in Windows, among other things, lots of other things. And uh, welcome, Jeff. Welcome back. Well, thank you very much. Always good to be here. Well, it's almost like we're, it was only a couple of, a few weeks ago we had you on talking about hardware. And, and then this whole discussion came up around more about memory, which, uh, I guess just it needed another show. Yeah. We wanted to discuss the memory model of Windows. And I actually want to start, uh, even, you know, very, very few people, I think, in this business now really understand, um, the processor, you know, registers, the assembly language, what really happens down there, just because they don't need to. And, um, I, you know, I did a bit, fair bit of assembly language work, and I know Richard has, and he's even done some electronic stuff, so he knows how it works at that level. But fundamentally, you have this CPU that has little slots of memory available in it called registers. And at an assembly language level, a program is merely um, putting commands and addresses in those registers and then calling interrupts and uh, um, calling functions on the processor to tell the processor to go look at that piece of memory, go grab that area, move this into that, compute this to that. But it all happens at a very uh, a low level. But I find, Jeff, and I'm sure you re agree, some of the patterns that happen down there at that low level repeat themselves all the way up to a, you know a higher level application framework or even a, the .NET framework, you know, things like pointers. An object, sure. a reference to an object is essentially a pointer, except that it's at a much higher level. So I, I just want to begin the discussion down there at the processor, because that's really where, you know, the whole discussion about memory starts. So uh, back in the days of uh, should we even start with DOS? I mean, I, th I think that feels antiquated to me, but maybe in the world of 16-bit architectures of Windows, uh, before Windows 95, there the, the memory was segmented, wasn't it? So when you actually told the processor, uh, you know, gave it an address or a pointer or something like that, you, you first had to have a, uh, a starting point. And because you really didn't have... Is that right? We had offsets? Well, yeah. So, okay. So if you want to, all right, so now I see the direction you want to head in. Um, if you go back to the very early days, I mean, I, in fact, I'd like to start this conversation talking about the TRS-80 that I still have in my garage. Awesome. Model 1? Uh, yeah, Model 1. That's Love right. it. <laughs> in fact, I think it's serial number 6. No wow. kidding. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> wow. I'm hoping it's actually worth some money, but I don't know. <laughs> Did you actually get it upgraded to level two, or was it still a, like a level one machine? Well, it's a model one machine, but it was running level two basic. Right. So, but then it means you, you could address 16k of memory there, or actually you could even address 64k with that that level two. Yes, that's correct. So, but when I remember when we bought it, it had 4k of ROM and it had 4k of RAM, and that was the smallest configuration you could buy, and wow. then you could upgrade it. To, to get more out of it. So in in those early days, um, your program was the only program running on the machine, and so the machine gave you all the memory that was available, and so your program was accessing physical memory, right. the actual RAM. And if there was only 4K of RAM, uh, like my Terrace 80 had, then your program 
could load into memory and use up some of the 4K, and then you had the remainder of the 4K left for your data mm. that your program was going to manipulate. And, of course, you could upgrade it, and you could put more RAM in the box, but then you were on a 16-bit machine limited to 64K. So then when the newer processors came out, I mean, clearly that was very constraining and limiting. So there was always this quest in those early days to get more memory, um, but also to try to maintain some backward compatibility. So what they came up with next was a segmented architecture, like you mentioned, Carl, where you would have these uh, segment registers in the CPU that got added in, I don't know, the 80, 86 or 8286 or something like that processors mm-hmm. a long time ago now. And you would set a seg, a selector or segment register to point to some block of 64K, and then you could um, access memory within there. Then you could set it to a different region of 64K and access that. Yeah, in basic, it was the def seg keyword, the defined segment, right? Yeah. I I don't even remember that, but (laughs) (laughs) I don't doubt it. Um, I switched to C programming very early on, yeah. and we had a we had a small we had a tiny memory model, if I remember correctly, like Borland C compiler and Microsoft C compiler. There was like a tiny memory model, and then there was a medium memory model, and there was a large memory model, and there was a huge memory model. Right. Um, and in the huge memory model, well, large and huge memory models, you had 16 bits for the segment and another 16 bits for the offset within the segment. Hmm. With the huge model, those Two pointers got updated in tandem all the time, so it looked like you your program was slower and it was a little bit bigger, but it was easy to write code that could access large pieces of memory. Okay, that way. Oh my gosh, it's I'm <laughs> thinking about it now. No, trip down <laughs> so memory lane. <laughs> I'm surprised uh, I pulled then, def seg out of whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. I'm thinking right now about in Windows a uh, make proc instance. There was this function called make proc instance, which created this little block of memory that kind of connected you to a segment and to a pointer to a function within that segment. Wow. And in Win32, that became a macro, that function that did nothing. Hmm. So, um, but hmm. I used to have to wow. call it all the time. I remember having many bugs in 16-bit Windows because I forgot to call make proc instance first. <laughs> Um, oh man, it's all coming back. Uh, bad nightmare. Like a nightmare. Yeah, I'm getting yeah. chills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I did 16-bit programming for so many years and, and wrote several books about it. And uh, I should look at them now and kind of reread some of the old stuff and be so thankful I don't have to do that anymore. I remember um, having a friend who was a Unix programmer who got into the PC stuff, and 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 she was saying to me, "What's with all these? What's with this segment stuff? I mean, the memory is just a nightmare dealing with memory." Because, you know, I guess they had a flat model. But uh, I guess it was really the, was it, it was really the 32-bit operating system where the the default segment didn't matter because you could address the entire space with a single pointer. And that's really what we're talking about. That's why it had to be segmented. Well, so what happened with Win32, I mean, it was a much bigger shift than that. With Win32, when Microsoft hired Dave Cutler away around 1988 from Digital Equipment Corp, and he had worked on the VMS operating system, which was right. the virtual memory system. And I would like and to say, on. for the record, the only thing that was ever wrong with VMS was owned by DAC. Hmm. <laughs> I thought it true. was a great <laughs> OS. I installed a ton of 3000 series DACs back then, and the company frustrated me to death, but the product was awesome. Yeah. It did so much. Sorry, I didn't mean to derail you there, but I just, you you know, if you're going to throw me back into this stuff, I just remember beating my head against the wall because it could not work with the company. Well, that's what's fun about this talk. It's really uh, waxing nostalgic, isn't it? I kind of like that. But, you know, there Uh is a point to it. (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's good to know where your roots are and how you got to where you're at. You know, and so the selectors came in again because of backward compatibility. You wouldn't want to have to take a change that occurred. Well, with Win32, um, Microsoft said, well, not only do we want to have 32 bits of address space so processes can run in there, but we also want to add the virtual memory system in. So instead of prior to in the Windows world or in the Microsoft world of DOS and Windows, prior to that, your programs always access physical RAM in the box. So as much RAM as you had, that was as much 
code and data that you could fit in at one time. Right. But with the introduction of Windows NT 3.1, which was the first version of mm -hmm. Windows NT, and the virtual memory system, that limitation also went away. Right. So your program was no longer constrained by the amount of RAM on the box. The operating system worked with files on the disk, because files were always bigger, and right. the hard disks were bigger than the amount of RAM that you had to have this virtual system where pieces of your file data would be loaded into RAM. Then your programs had these virtual addresses, which would then get translated by the CPU into physical addresses in RAM. And if you needed to access, something, access a piece of memory that wasn't in RAM right now, then a page fault would occur, and Windows would go and find some page of RAM on a 32-bit machine, pages are four kilobyte blocks, hmm. and would discard it out of RAM, and then load the 4K page back from disk into RAM, and then fix up these tables so that now that virtual address pointed to this location in RAM. Hmm. And so you ended up having now 32-bit pointers, but they were really virtual, and then every time you did an access through one of those pointers, the CPU translated it to a physical address, and then the physical RAM can be swapped to and from disk. And so now your uh, amount of programs you could run on the machine was really limited by the amount of hard disk space you had and the size of the paging file that you had set up, and no longer limited by the amount of RAM. This is an era of, you're talking about a megabyte of RAM and a 20 megabyte hard disk. Right. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't big by today's standards, but that was the system of the day. And also remember that, you know, I do remember us suffering a little bit performance-wise because of the, the page swapping and all of that, but but your programs ran. Yeah, because the alternative yeah. was it crashed. It crashed, yeah, that was the alternative. And we were used to Windows 3.1 Workgroup or whatever, which was the the 16-bit of the day. Yeah, and then another big feature, too, was that processes were isolated from one another. So each process got its own virtual address space, and if one application caused memory corruption to occur, it could only adversely affect itself. Now, this is something... And not anything else. That's another benefit that we got from that. Well, yeah, and that, that was huge for NT. Run run this application in its own address space was the, was the checkbox, I remember. And uh, you, this isn't a new idea. I mean, we've been trying to do this with architecture of, not, uh, of CPUs in, in, in the system as well, right? I mean, what, what was the 286 protected mode all about? I mean, that was a similar kind of attempt to do the same thing, wasn't it? Um, that was more of an attempt to get the operating system code off limits from the application code. So it was similar for sure. Um, but it wasn't at the and, Windows process level. Correct. Right. The programs would run in the same address space, but the operating system... You know, it's been a long time, so I'm not even sure yeah. if I remember this right exactly, but... <laughs> yeah. Um, Suffice it to say, it wasn't, it wasn't strong enough. So it wasn't until NT yeah. where we actually had this real separation. And that means that if you wanted to do cross-process communication, you really had... It, it was kind of difficult, wasn't it? You had to sort of punch holes in the uh, in in the in the OS in the process somewhere. We had to use things like, well, we could use sockets that came around. We could use DDE, sure. and we could use some of those things. But there was also memory map files, which is the highest performance way. Right. And in that case, you are kind of punching a hole in. Um, you're actually letting two or more processes share the same set of physical RAM in their different virtual address spaces. It was a way of taking some pages in RAM and saying, I want them in this address space, and I also want them in this address space at the same time. Right. And one process could write to it. Those bytes are changing instantly in the other process, yeah. and then the other process could read from it, and you could communicate. That was by far the fastest way. Yeah. But other than using that, then you're right. You had to go through sockets or name pipes or DDE or COM or Olay. Or right. Yeah, the list goes on and on. Yeah, I'm, I, I do apologize for, you know, trying to bring back <laughs> technical <laughs> details from 20 years ago. But, but I, it, it is, it, it is to, suffice it to say, things were much, much more difficult. Forget about managed code, just native code. Trying to access memory was, was ridiculous. Well, and, the, and the other flashback you just gave me here, Carl, and the whole protective mode thing is we've been fighting the battle of isolating our operating system from our running programs for yeah. a long time, and I don't think we've yet come up with a great solution. Well, it's not great, but it's certainly really good. <laughs>
I mean, I, we don't have those kind of crashes all the time. But I think most of the crashes that we have these days, if you get a perfectly fine-tuned running system, is basically driver incompatibilities and things like that. I think that's still a challenge for a lot of hardware makers. Well, I certainly agree. And Microsoft has a big push to get device drivers out of the kernel now. And with Windows XP, um, like Service Pack 3, and certainly with Windows Vista, Microsoft introduced this user mode driver framework so that a lot of device drivers can be written in user mode now instead of in the kernel. There's still, I know, four kinds of devices that still need to run in the kernel because of speed. Storage, like NTFS, mm-hmm. uh, video, I think network also needs, and there's a fourth one I can never remember that has to run in the kernel. But Microsoft, in the I know future goal is to make the kernel be only running Microsoft code that's well-tested. And then blue screens would hopefully come to an end, or it would definitely be a Microsoft bug, and Microsoft would fix it. It would not be a device driver bug. And, it, and this has got to be partly fallout of the whole Vista crisis around NVIDIA drivers and the like. So back in the back in the old days, let's say we've made it to Win32, and we're writing some software, and we have variables. We have different kinds of variables. We have static variables. We have object variables. What what are the kinds of things are we thinking about? Like we have the stack, we have the heap. Most people don't know what those things are nowadays. If you got into programming at C Sharp or VBNet, you probably might not have heard about those those terms. What what yeah? What is the whole experience of allocating and deallocating memory? What was it like back then? All right, so there were there's kind of three different places where memory could reside. Uh, memory could just reside in a, a a region of memory that was really determined by the compiler. When the compiler compiled your code and you had static variables or static fields like you're talking about, the compiler would go and create a data segment as part of your XE or DLL file and would put all of that stuff in there. So when your program ran started to run, Windows would allocate a block of memory to back the data segment portion, and then any code that you had to access those static fields just went and touched those bytes. And that was static data. In other words, it didn't grow and it didn't shrink. It was constant. when the, It got created when the program started, and it lived until the process died. Then every thread has a thread stack, which in Windows defaults to one megabyte in size. And the stack is really where the context of what that thread of execution is currently doing. So it has placed on it the local local variables that you allocate inside of a function or a method get allocated on the stack. And any um, arguments you pass to a method, they get pushed on the stack. Right, and then the method pops them off to access them, yeah. Well, just, yeah, it pops them off when it returns back. So we right. unwind the stack then, and the return address of where to return to of the calling method is pushed on the stack, and that's how the system knows when you return from a method where to go back to. Mm. So the stack was used for that. And then the other, but the stack, the memory on the stack really just existed for the time that the function or method executed. And when it returned, all the local variables in it would go away. Well, sometimes inside of a function, you might want to allocate something and have it live longer than the lifetime of the method call. Sure. And so we would use the heap for that. So if you had a if you had a variable or an object that lived outside of the routine at the at the module level or at the class level, that had to be on the heap, right? Yes. Yeah. That's right. And then you would get a pointer to it. And then you would return the pointer back from the method, or maybe you would put the pointer in that in a static variable, so that some other piece of code could go and find that object and work on it at a later time as your program ran. Those are the three. That's all I can think of. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So, so when you're, I mean, back in the days of C, we would create a string. We would have to, re, you know, destroy that memory as soon as uh, as soon as we were done with it. And if you didn't, the you just have memory leaks. I remember well, yeah. memory leaks being a problem that not a lot of .NET developers ever had to deal with. But if you only needed the string for the lifetime of a method, then you would allocate it on the stack, on the stack. rather than on the heap. In fact, we always tried to do that. Yeah. We, in C and C++, you always tried to use the stack as much as possible and avoid the heap as much as possible because the stack automatically cleans itself up when you return from a method, and you're pretty much guaranteed you're not going to have a memory leak. Furthermore... Yeah. 
Go ahead. Well, allocating something on the heap is a relatively expensive operation because multiple threads might be trying to do it simultaneously. A thread uh, synchronization lock has to be taken, and then really only one thread at a time can allocate a block from the heap, which means walking through a linked list of nodes, finding one large enough to satisfy the request, then splitting the nodes off, then releasing the thread synchronization lock, and then returning back to the caller. You can imagine as a programmer having to go through all that when you just wanted to create a variable that lives outside of a function or method in your Yeah, that's your, right. Jeez. Right. So there's a fair amount of overhead of allocating that and then later getting rid of it. And, of course, if you forget to get rid of it, then you do have a memory leak. Eventually, your process would terminate so out of memory. Yeah. It, all, it just makes me uh, appreciate what we have. <laughs> yeah. Well, so in .NET, it's, uh, it's kind of changed. Um, I still try to use the stack as much as possible, but mostly, really the only thing you can put on the stack are value types or references, pointers to reference types, and reference types are always on the heap, so we're constantly allocating on the heap in the managed world, and we're using the stack much less often as we used to. Um, But fortunately, the problem of freeing up the memory is now solved by a garbage collector, so we don't have to worry about the freeing aspect of it anymore. Yeah, except except when we do. <laughs> well, except when we do, right? <laughs> so allocations tend to be very fast. The way the garbage collector is designed, allocating memory off the heap is also really fast, much faster than it is in the native world. But then we pay for it later with the garbage collection phase because the performance there can well can be variable. <laughs> let me let me leave it at that. <laughs> I find the garbage collection model absolutely adequate. Right yeah. up until it isn't. Yeah, well, which is that's typically <laughs> under lots of pressure. Right. Was basic really where garbage collection came from? Because I remember I was dealing with that in Quick Basic. Uh, basic has always been garbage collected, um, but there are many other languages that okay. have been garbage collected too over the years. I wouldn't say that Basic invented it. Okay. It's been around for a long time. Oh, very cool. The whole idea being that um, memory just gets allocated quickly. Because allocating memory doesn't isn't so expensive time wise as deallocating memory, which actually does. Because, isn't it? It was explained to me that the memory is sort of like a hard disk, and when you deallocate memory, it has to be compacted and sort of like a de- disk defragmenter does, and that that takes a lot of time. Well, there are different algorithms for doing garbage collection. And the algorithm that we have in .NET does do what you say. It's a compacting garbage collector. So it is kind of like a disk defragmenter. Um, but a part of the problem also is the garbage collector has to figure out when something is free or not. Right. So there's a, a pretty good period of time where it's looking at the objects in the heap and it's saying, well, does the program still need this or not? That takes a chunk of time. Then once it's determined, oh, well, here are the objects that the program doesn't seem to need anymore, then it has to go and compact memory, do that defragmentation step. Right. And then when it moves objects in memory that are saved, it has to go back to the variables that refer to those objects and has to fix them up because the references are now all wrong to them. Hmm. So it has to go and, and fix those. It has to fix every reference or does it just have to fix the yeah, I guess it does have to fix every reference. It references reference. to anything that's moved. Yeah. Which can be a lot of stuff, yeah. So when you have an object reference, and you, you mentioned value types versus reference types, which we just talked about in Better Know Framework. But a value type is uh, um, sort of analogous to um, uh, a file. On This is the way I like to describe it. Let's say you make a, a text file with Notepad and you put it on your desktop and you type in hello or something like that, and then you do a copy and a paste. And that's sort of like what happens when you assign one integer variable to another integer variable. You're getting two discrete copies that if you change one, the other one doesn't change. But a reference type is if you took that same uh, text file and you made a a shortcut to it, and the shortcut is your variable, um, and you can make as many copies as you want of that shortcut, and you're still not changing the object, which lives in memory on the heap. That's correct. Yeah, so... All the shortcuts now refer to the new data. Right. So what you're saying is that if it, when you compact memory and move things around, it's like moving that file off the desktop to the root of the C drive or some other directory. Now all your shortcuts can't find the file. Right, except the garbage collector fixes the shortcuts so it can still find the file. Yes, that's Exactly, right. exactly. Yeah. 
That's a good analogy. You're listening to .NET Rocks from .NET Rocks.com. This is Carl. I have a message from our sponsor, Telerik, who wants you to know about the best way to learn using new dev tools and technologies. Well, is it reading manuals, watching videos, playing with sample code? How about all of the above? So Telerik recently launched their new interactive trainer tool to help you effectively learn all the Telerik products in your own pace. The Telerik trainer is a slick WPF app that combines a video player with synchronized highlights, a table of contents for topical navigation, and a context-sensitive code launcher. While playing the narrated videos, you'll see a code button light up at a relevant section. Click the button, and you'll open the respective file from the provided project directly into Visual Studio. No more searching for code while watching a training video. This is indeed innovation in training. They're always releasing new tutorials for all the Telerik products, so don't waste any more time and download this amazing new training tool now at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K. And as you know, when it comes to developer tools, it's not just about great products, but also about reliable support and effective training materials, and that's exactly what our friends at Telerik have done. Check it out. Now let's get back to the show. Well, all of this stuff is... uh it takes a while, and that's why the the garbage collector does its thing on a on a low priority background thread, so that it doesn't disturb you know the the operator disturbs the operation uh, uh, of the application as least amount as possible. But R- Richard and I are both have both said something flip like you know it works up until the point where it doesn't. Well, there are situations in which the garbage collector is you like you really wish it wasn't there because you can't take the time to do that and still uh, not cause problems with your application? Well, there's a, there's a lot of work that's being done in the garbage collection algorithm and has been done over the years to try to improve its performance. And we talked a little bit on our last talk about how a future version of it will probably incorporate NUMA technologies into right. it so it can be smarter there about what nodes it allocates the memory on. Uh, the garbage collector today is a generational collector, and it tries to collect, most of the time, it collects up to maybe 256 kilobytes at a time, which mm-hmm. it can do pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And occasionally, like one every 10 GCs, it will collect maybe two megabytes worth of stuff. And um, another 10 times after that, so like one in 100 times or so, it will collect the entire heap mm. and everything that's inside it. So there's a, and there's, we do have a concurrent collector that runs on server machines, so it can have multiple threads running concurrently, hmm. doing the collection simultaneously. Wow. Um, there's, and there's some other things, too, which I, I won't mention, but my, they're in my book. Um, <laughs> ah, <laughs> let's talk about it. <laughs> um, Let, and let's just do a call-out to the book, because, yeah. Jeff, you, do, you write nothing but excellent books. It's true. Well, thank they're you. well worth reading. Thank you. Which book are we talking about? Uh, the latest one is CLR via C Sharp. Um, that's my latest .NET book, and it has a whole chapter on the garbage collector, and it talks about these generations and how frequently it does these collections of the different generations. And it also talks about the concurrent collector and uh, the server collector and, and things like that as well, um, which try to improve performance. Well, and I, th- and I think this gets really, really relevant when you start living in a 64-bit world and you're talking about garbage collecting some big spaces with lots of processors. Yeah, but it, it depends on how much memory your program's actually using. You know, right. Another thing, you know, th- I mean, just for fun, let's go down the whole path. Okay. So one, one thread decides it, um, it needs to do a GC. So the first thing that the garbage collection algorithm does is it suspends all the threads in the process. So the more threads you have, the slower that's going to be, right? It's now, going to just before you go into this, Jeff, what yeah. makes a thread decide it needs to run a GC? Well, okay, that's a Good fair question. question. Um, usually what people think it has something to do with time, like 10 times a second the GC kicks in, but that is incorrect. It has nothing to do with time. It has to do with memory pressure. So generation zero is what we call it, and it has a threshold or a budget, and it defaults when your program initializes to 256K. So that means after your program is allocated 256 kilobytes of data, that's when a GC kicks in. And then let me go down the path, and then I'll come back to that in a moment. Okay. So when the GC kicks, so your program starts running, you allocate 256K, and 
Now a GC is going to kick in. So all the threads in the process get suspended. So the more threads you have, the worse that's going to be performance-wise. Then the garbage collection algorithm has to walk up all the thread stacks to look at all the local variables and arguments, to look at any which are reference types, and then it has to walk to those objects in the heap and say, okay, you have to survive because there's some variable that refers to you. Right. And any object in the heap where there is no variable that refers to it, that's considered to be garbage. If there's no way for the program to refer to it, there's no reason to keep it around in the system. So the more threads... More threads you have, the more stacks we have to walk up, the GC has to walk up, and that makes that slower. And then stacks can be, as I said, up to a megabyte in size by default. And so the deeper the stack is, the slower the GC is as well. Right. So you always want to strive in your program to have as few threads as possible with incredibly short stacks. Like try to avoid recursive functions, for example that calls themselves and call themselves and call right. themselves because you keep building up the stack and the performance of the GC will really deteriorate. So okay. then, now that we've marked all the objects in the heap that are reachable by some piece of code, then the garbage collector goes and compacts. So that's going to take some time to move everything down. Then as it's moving things down, it has to go back to all those thread stacks and update any references to the new locations of where it moved the objects to. Mm-hmm. So that takes time. And again, the more threads you have and the deeper their stacks, the worse that is. Then it will go and resume the, uh, the program. It resumes all the threads. And now they all start running again. Now, what about generations? So because... now I'll get back to that. Okay. So when... The first GC kicks in after 256 kilobytes of allocation, and then the garbage collector looks at how many objects survived, not not really how many, but how much memory has survived and how much memory is garbage. And if there was a lot of surviving objects, that means it wasn't useful doing the GC because the purpose of the GC is to free up memory. But if a lot of objects survive, not a lot of memory was freed. And so what the garbage collector does is it changes generation zero budget from 256K to double, let's say, 512K. So now your program will run and allocate up to 512K before the next GC kicks in. Uh. On the other hand, if the GC ran and there was a lot of garbage, then the garbage collector algorithm is very excited by that whole thing. (laughs) <laughs> and says, hey, that was great. Ran the GC, freed up a lot of memory, and so it will actually shrink the threshold to, let's say, 128K. Oh. So now your program will do GCs more frequently, but when they occur, they're running on such a small amount of memory that the GC goes incredibly fast. Right. And, that, and this is the whole thing, is this, the amount of memory you're walking is sort of the main time budget here. The, of course, the work it's doing matters, too. But the more memory it's got, the more trouble it can get into, and the longer it may be waiting, depending on how you're allocating memory, uh, before it runs it. I love that. Yeah. I love how it tunes itself over time. Yeah, and that's really the cool thing. Because a lot of times people ask, are there any, like, registry options or config file settings to control the garbage collector? And there are actually, like, one or two, but there's very few. And the reason is because the garbage collector is self-tuning. Right. It knows what your application is doing, and it is fine-tuning itself as your program runs. Well, and you could imagine a program that in its setup just allocates a megabyte's worth of memory. You're going to fire off a couple of GCs over the course of that that are going to release probably virtually nothing. Right. And, and it's going to recognize I need bigger and bigger blocks before I run GCs now. Yeah, that's right. And that's very cool. <laughs> it's smart. Yes, it's very smart. And we would expect these algorithms to just get better over time. These kinds of things will just improve, and the GC... So, I mean, my belief, I truly, truly, honestly believe that in the future, a garbage-collected system will be faster than the native system. And we will also be getting type safety, no memory corruption, no memory leaks, and also another benefit that we get with the GC is we don't have a fragmented address space, which is another big problem that existed in the native CC++ world where you allocate a block of memory, let's say it's 10 bytes, and then you allocate another 10 bytes, and you allocate a third 10 bytes, and then you free up the first and third 10 bytes, but they're not contiguous. They're not next to each other in memory. There's this other 10-byte block in the middle. And then you try to allocate 20 bytes. That will fail in the native world because the bytes have to be contiguous. 
But in a GC world, because it compacts memory down, there is no address space fragmentation that occurs. So we're going to get all these benefits from a GC world, and I believe that our ultimate goal, it'll perform faster than the native world. Now, what, what happens when the native world and the managed world collide, such as when you have a, a COM object in a .NET application, Mem- memory-wise? Yeah, so we, we have this today, um, certainly, and in a 32-bit process, but, well, there's native code running in your process, and there's managed code running in the process. Yeah. I mean, the runtime itself is native code, sure. and it allocates using the native memory allocator, heap allo, heap free, and so mm-hmm. on. Um, and that heap can get fragmented, but the managed heap will be unfragmented. Over time, we'll probably have less and less native code, more and more managed code, and that becomes less of a problem. And, of course, today, for those people that are really having a problem, 64-bit windows with the larger address space can usually make fragmentation, even native programs, not be much of an issue because mm. your address space is just so big. Right. You can find, you can find 20 contiguous bytes somewhere right. in this 8-terabyte block. There must be 20 contiguous <laughs> bytes somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, and this gets really, I mean, we're talking about 256K, 512K blocks. When I've got 64 gigabytes of RAM in a machine, I'm just trying to envision, and I guess we, and we really haven't talked about this. When we talk about these big machines now that are running .NET, what is memory, is memory management somehow different in this 64-bit space? Yeah, and, and the no. whole idea of a virtual memory system where you've got, when you have all that gigs of RAM, do you really need a, a file system swapping, swap file kind of thing? Do you need it? Well, it depends what programs you run. If somebody wants to edit a video file and, they, and the software is designed in such a way where it opens up the, the video file off the disk mm. and wants to load the entire thing into memory, yeah. into RAM to manipulate it, um, they, first of all, it will probably fit in a 64-bit address space, whereas it would not fit in a 32-bit address space. Yeah. And if it all fits in RAM, then the performance is good. Yeah. So, I mean, that brings us back to, I think, another important point that a lot of programmers do not understand. And that Windows is this virtual memory system where it swaps um, disk for memory all the time. And But everybody knows this, right? If you have a computer and it's running Windows and you feel that it's running slow, what do you do to improve the performance of the machine? You add RAM. You add RAM, right? So clearly, there must be some relationship between RAM and speed because of that. What you're getting and, at, yeah. Right, so what it means is since there's more RAM available, the system is doing less swapping to disk, which is very slow. Right. And that's what causes your machine to run fast. The swapping only happens when the pressure is great, in other words, right. is what you're saying. on the physical RAM. When the pressure on the physical RAM is great, then the operating system swaps it from disk. And that's when you know that you're either running out of disk space or RAM or both, because everything's really slow. Yeah. yeah. Well, it could be doing a lot of swapping. So, I mean, to bring that back to the garbage collection discussion, that's another reason why uh, this 256K number was chosen, which is a pretty small number for a lot of applications. When that GC kicks in and we compress memory down, um, we compact it down, we get what's called locality of reference. So if your program is, let's say, using a file stream and it's using a stream writer object at the same time, Mm -hmm. those two objects will be, in the garbage collected world, they could be allocated, it's very likely that they will be allocated right next to each other in memory. And if they're on the same 4K page, which is likely, then your program really only needs to have 4K in RAM in order to write to the file on the disk. But in the native world, if you allocated the native equivalent of a file stream and the native equivalent of stream writer, then they might be in two different pages and two different 4K blocks in RAM. And then for your program to run fast, it needs 8K of RAM to run instead of 4K of RAM to run. Mm. So you don't get locality of reference there. And that's another benefit we get with the garbage collected world. And so your program should theoretically run faster in a GC world. And in some cases, it does. There's so many other factors going on that faster is a very tough thing to figure out. Definitely. And it's really hard to measure because any tool that you put on to measure it affects it. There's a Heisenberg uncertainty thing here, right? <laughs> yeah, the more accurately exactly. I measure, the more precisely I try and measure, the more inaccurate the results are. Right. 
<laughs> That's exactly right. It's a, it's a, it's a very interesting problem. I mean, the best endorsement I could possibly make of .NET is just the success that it's had. We build a lot of good programs with it. But didn't this whole managed memory model? Uh, Java did this. There's lots of systems out there, including Java, which are garbage collected. Right. Yeah, garbage collection has been around for a long time, and it's, I mean, the the idea that writing memory is more important than freeing it up is uh, is logical. Yeah. Well, and then the other problem with, with people with explicit freeing uh, schemes, like in the native world, is that some program, let's say, allocates memory, then maybe hands a pointer to an object off to another piece of code, and then the program goes and frees that memory, then that other piece of code goes and uses that pointer because it doesn't know the memory's been taken out from underneath it. And so now memory gets corrupted. And that's something else that can't happen in the managed world with verifiably safe code anyway. That can't happen. You can't get memory corruption. Yeah. Do you see this method of managing memory around Windows changing anytime soon? I mean, we've been hearing about transactional memory and obviously some other technologies that that might be shifting it around. I don't know what your experience is there. Well, uh, I think there, I know there's, there's definitely efforts at Microsoft to get more managed code into the operating system so that maybe device drivers and system services can be written in a managed world so there's no memory leaks, no memory corruption, programmers have an easier lifestyle. I mean, certainly today writing a device driver is a really hard thing for a lot of people to do. Yeah. And then you have all these companies that are writing, you know, TV tuner cards and all, you know, USB devices for cameras and scanners and so on. And these developers don't necessarily do a good job and writing it in the managed world will be really big on that. So I would certainly expect more of Windows itself to become managed over time. Media Center is um, largely managed, at least the shell mm. is largely managed. And also there's a bunch of tablet PC stuff that ships with Windows today that's largely managed too. So that's, I know for a fact that that's definitely going to change and more of the operating system will be managed. Um, as you mentioned, software transactional memory. Software transactional memory um, is a feature to try to help with concurrency, again, where you have multiple threads that are trying to possibly access the same object at the same time. Right. And they both, let's say, go and touch the object, but then one of them has to win, and then the other one rolls back and says, oh, some other object changes behind my back. I'll go and make my changes again. And it kind of restarts the operation over. Um, there are teams I know at Microsoft and outside of Microsoft that are working very heavily on this as a possible solution, and I know they're trying to build it into the common language runtime so that you effectively get it for free um, if you're a managed programmer. Um, but the, what I understand right now is that the performance ramifications of it are pretty abysmal. And that's what I was thinking yeah. is this kind of protection has got to come at a price. Yeah. But, you know... What's the alternative? When we get into that, that scenario exists right now right. and we get into race conditions, right? Stuff locks up. And it's, and it's clearly the whole threading model of, of locking and everything has gotten better in .NET, certainly in managed code than it is in native code, but it's still not easy enough for the average developer to use. And it, yes. you know. Yeah. So it'll probably it'll probably be introduced at some point in time, and for developers that just want to crank out a solution and are willing to take a perf hit, it'll probably be a great thing for them. And for some applications that just can't support that perf hit, they'll do it the old-fashioned way today of taking locks, releasing locks, and if they have a deadlock, they'll just have to fix it. And it, you know the, the other point, Jeff, and we made this before we actually started recording, is that not all applications need to have lots of things happening on lots of threads all at once. And the things that do, you know, take advantage of multiple cores. The cores are getting, we're getting more and more cores. We're going to see 18, 24, 48 cores on a, on a chip sometime soon. And the STM then will probably be a lot less of a performance hit once you get up into that level of uh, application, don't you think? Well, I don't know. I, it, it depends how it's implemented internally, and I don't have enough knowledge about that. 
Um, I mean, the more cores you have, in a sense, makes it worse. Uh, in fact, this is a well-known thing about Windows. If you have multiple threads native in just regular native code, if you have multiple threads running and they're all trying to allocate objects from the heap at the same time, the performance is worse than if you had only one thread trying to allocate because of all the thread synchronization that has to go on and the CPUs have to communicate with each other. So there is this argument that the more CPUs you have, the more likelihood there is for them to be stomping on the same data at the same time. And when that happens, the performance is very bad. And so it could get worse. Yeah. And STM could, could say, hey, well, I got multiple threads. They're all trying to touch this object. Only one can do it. And, right. And performance could get worse, not better. This isn't there. There is a magic number. I think it's what, 20 for threads in a thread pool? That uh, after a certain number of threads are running in a particular process, there it doesn't matter what you're doing on those threads, the performance diminishes? Well, I mean, the ideal number of threads to have is equal to the it's number one. of CPUs <laughs> on the machine. Well, one per CPU. Right, right. You know, so um, the... And the reason is because if you have more threads than there are CPUs, then Windows has to context switch between them. And doing a context switch is a pretty expensive operation in Windows, and it happens every 20 milliseconds or 15 right. milliseconds or so. So it's uh, you really want to reduce context switching as much as possible. Now, the thread pool has a limit, and I think that's what you're referring to with right. the 20 threads. Yeah. Um, and a lot of programmers in the world have gotten into deadlock and starvation situations with that. And so in... Common Language Runtime 2.0 Service Pack 1, that's the CLR that ships with .NET 3.5, that was increased to 250. Oh! Yeah. And really, a thread pool shouldn't have a maximum to the number of threads that it can create. Uh, and in fact, I worked on the Windows 2000 thread pool APIs, you know, mm -hmm. way back, like eight years ago, nine years ago. Mm. And we decided then to not have a limit. So there is no Windows API for when you're using the thread pool where you can set the maximum number of threads that are in the pool. And that was a very conscious decision. Hmm. And the CLR team, they actually stole that code out of Windows operating system, hmm. put it into the CLR, and then they added this, quote, feature, end quote, <laughs> to set a maximum to the number of threads that can be in the pool. But that feature was really a bug. Oh. And <laughs> <laughs> they should have never done that. <laughs> And 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 they have proven it because originally it was ten, then it was up, I think, to twenty-five, yeah. and then in the most recent version they upped it to two hundred and fifty. So, and which is effectively limitless. I just thought that there was some law of diminishing returns that applied. That somebody told me, like, no matter what you're doing on those threads, no matter how intensive or how unintensive, that that it seems like the performance goes downhill after twenty or so threads. I, no, I, I had that conversation. Doesn't just the co the cost of context switching starts becoming a significant portion of the total processing time. Right. But I guess it does depend on the... Yeah, that was the other thing this person said. It doesn't really matter what the speed of your CPUs are the, or anything else. That This sort of is a just a known, a known observation, ob observed rule. If you had a machine with 20 CPUs in it, and then you had 20 threads, one on each CPU, and they were all running independent tasks of one another, they're all going to run at full speed. There will be no context switching, and your performance will be awesome. Right, but I'm, I'm talking about per CPU. Oh, 20 per CPU? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Whoever you were talking to is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to whoever that is, but <laughs> that's, uh, that is an incorrect piece of information. All right, good, good. But yeah, the, I mean, the magic number is that 25 threads per available processor thing, which is a CLR thing. Well, but now it's been raised to 250. But Which is, I, really I, sounds to me like, let's see if we, we just put it high enough that it never matters. Right. Well, yes, that's exactly the point. So that's why we didn't have a maximum in Windows 2000. When they stole the code and added that maximum, now they've been bitten in the butt by it year after year, and they keep raising it and raising it, and they've effectively made it limitless now. Right, which is what it should have been in the first place. Exactly. Well, in a thread That's pool, right. a thread pool is really nothing more than somebody saying, "Hey, I uh, take this and queue it up in the next available thread, put it on that thread." And uh and managing those threads and starting new threads and removing threads. So it really I mean it isn't 
that big of a that's not that hard of a, a most of a challenging uh, a challenging project to do a thread pool to do it in a very high performance scalable way it is it can be quite challenging because let's say you have three threads and they all want to grab the next work item at the same time you have to arbitrate that so that the item doesn't get worked on let's say twice hmm. or by all three threads hmm. right so there's a little bit of thread synchronization there and uh, there's there's a bunch of things there's a bunch of little subtleties. The devil's in the details yeah. to really try to give you the best performing possible thread pool. Hmm. Well, and so much of this isn't a big deal until we actually load these machines up significantly. When they actually are working really hard is where you start to see these issues. Well, I would say, do you, how do you feel about Windows Vista today? Does it feel very responsive to you and you feel like... Uh, you're very happy using it? No it, comment. You couldn't be any faster? Exactly, no, right? No comment. It always so. <laughs> feels like it could be faster. <laughs> and, and it can be faster. Here, open Task Manager right now. Do you have a machine in front of you? I do. <laughs> and I have, I, I'll, I'll give you my cho- the choice. I have a 32-bit one and a 64-bit one, both running Vista. Well, um, I don't care which one. Pick whichever one's running more apps, like Outlook or Visual Studio. So if you open Task Manager and you go to the Performance tab... Then you see uh, how many threads are on your machine right now in the system box in the bottom. Nine hundred and fifty-five. Nine fifty-five. So that means, and each thread gets a megabyte of memory. So that's a gigabyte of memory for thread stacks. Right. Which is a gigabyte that the programs don't get to have. And how much RAM's on the box? Four gigs. Four gig. So one quarter of that is for thread stacks alone. Alone. I'm, I'm oversimplifying it a little bit because it's really virtual memory. But I'd argue this machine is basically at rest, right? It is not the machine I'm recording from. It's got Outlook open. Two gigs of memory are allocated. Like It's not doing anything right now, and that's the state it's in. Yes, exactly. Right, that's the state it's in. So then if you go to the Processes tab, and then you say View, Select Columns, and you turn the Threads column on, and then Sort... Yeah, sort by threads in descending order. Which process shows up at the top for you? I always sort by by processor there. Outlook's got 59 threads open. Well, there you go. And what's the CPU usage for Outlook? Zero. There you go. So now <laughs> you will have to say, hey, do you think Outlook really needs 59 threads to do nothing? So it has 63 now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 63 <laughs> threads to do nothing? I mean, that can't possibly be right, right? There's, there's, in no world does that make actual sense. That's really an interesting point you brought up here, Jeff. I am staggered. <laughs> oh, wait, I can make it better. I can make it better. Let's say you set up your machine as a terminal server machine, and you have right. 100 people running Outlook all at the same time. <laughs> so now there's 6,000 threads? Right, 6,000 threads running, all doing nothing, but allocating that much memory for their stack. I think it's time right. to move to webmail, people. Well, and also getting a slice of CPU, right? They're on the on the, the, the scheduling queue for the processors. Well, if they have nothing to do, they're not. So if, okay. if the CPU usage is zero, then Windows doesn't have to wake them up to say, by the way, I'm waking you up so that you don't have anything to do, but... When they're a little more intelligent than that. But yeah, if they have something to do, it's got to go and wake them up. So this is the state of affairs um, in Windows today because people are taking that kind of attitude with the thread pool where, well, I'll just create more threads. And, you know, what's the big deal if I just create them? But threads are actually pretty expensive resources. They're just cheaper than processes. But and yeah, next- I'm, I, I just want to give guys a couple of hints here. Media Player is currently closed and it has 19 threads. Hmm. All the only thing I got running on OneNote right now is the little icon in the sys tray, right? I don't have OneNote open, but it's got 19 threads allocated to it. Yeah. Wow. Run Visual, Run Visual Studio or Internet Explorer too. They usually are, are pretty good on the number of threads. A little, not a little doing thread anything. fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, once I ran Windows um, Movie Maker, and it had 270 some threads in it alone on my dual processor machine. And there's just no way. These, all these applications are very poorly, poorly, poorly architected. And they are all wasting phenomenal amounts of memory, um, system resources. And this is, I believe, this is, it goes a big way towards why Vista feels so unresponsive and why when adding RAM, your machine runs faster. Hmm. 
because it's just about the memory allocated to the threads, not actually even utilizing it. Well, I mean, there's other things, too. I'm sure, you know, not every program is written perfectly, but that is, I believe, a really big part of it. People have been architecting this software and using threads in a very poor way for a long, long time. And that's what even leads people to think we should put a maximum on the thread pool. They say, you know what, people use threads like crazy. They're not actually free, so we should put a limit on the thread pool. That's not the right way to fix it. The right way to fix it is people should architect their application so they don't need more threads than number of CPUs. That's right. the ideal. And there are ways to architect applications where that's all that you use. And those applications use very little system resources, but they get phenomenal amounts of work done. And it's, it's a really much better way to go. And mostly server applications have adhered to that. Like, I know IIS works that way. Yeah. But a lot of application developers, they just create threads left and right. And again, Outlook is a perfect example of that. And OneNote. So is the answer to, uh, to running out of memory to get a machine with 8 gigs of RAM and run a 64-bit operating system to run your 32-bit applications in? Well, if you want speed out of them. Yeah. Yes, that would be always adding more RAM. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be 64-bit, 32-bit, unless the program really needs the bigger address space. But just running on a 32-bit machine with well, I'm, more RAM... I'm just, thinking, make, I'm just thinking you're running up against the 4-gigabyte limitation of RAM in 32-bit uh, world, and then oh, a gig yeah, of that is right. used for video memory sometimes, yeah. and a gig is used for threads. You're really only addressing 2 gigs, yeah, right? you're right. You're right. So if you, have an, uh, if you can put 8 gigs in that machine, you're... you're 32-bit apps will have more memory available. You can run more of them at the same time. And you can let them be the pigs that they want to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but really, we're compensating for a programming problem. Right. Yeah, really, right. So we make every end user purchase more RAM yeah. so that the programmers can be fat and dumb and lazy. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Sounds good to <laughs> me. It's great for the hardware manufacturers <laughs> and the memory companies. Yeah, it's great for them. <laughs> Well, guys, we're, we're just about out of time. Uh, what's the last word in memory? What's the next thing in memory? The next thing in memory? Well, I mean, we there's a lot of momentum now um, behind Windows. It's been around for a long, long time, and there's a lot of momentum now behind .NET. So I think that a really big shift in the way memory is used is a pretty unlikely thing to happen because uh, it would break all the applications that are out there. But, uh, I mean... And, you know, I think a 64-bit address space is probably going to hold us for a really long time. I, I don't agree. think we'll see a need for 128 um, in my lifetime. Now, there is a chance of that .NET applications, because they contain verifiable code, that all those applications can run inside a single process, address space now, and still not corrupt each other. And that, I mm. think, is a direction that we would go in. And if we go in that direction, in fact, that was a feature that was planned for Windows Vista, but it got cut, was the ability to run all or multiple managed applications on a single Windows process. Well, that makes sense because we have the app domain, which really yes. does what the process does for managed code. Yes, exactly. So if we do that, that's kind of interesting because then we could actually go back to the DOS or 16-bit Windows days where we ran everything in a single address space. If we could actually get rid of virtual memory and just put everything into physical memory, then performance would be much higher than what we have today. Mm. Although I think it's, we're unlikely to go down that path because um, it's just too risky to let everything sit in um, physical memory that way and not be able to swap things out and so on. So I don't mm. think that would happen, but it's possible that that would happen. Uh, and then a 32-bit address space isn't big enough to hold many managed applications, but a 64-bit address space where 8 terabytes is usable is pretty big. You can get a lot of managed applications into that. Mm. And if we really run out there, then maybe 128-bit um, processors will, will save save us from that problem but that's a long yeah. way away. when i start running when i start complaining about not having enough memory because of my eight terabytes just isn't cutting it <laughs> you can slap yeah. me yeah okay <laughs> well you know loading a feature length movie in high def into ram would be a really really wonderful thing to yeah, edit but loading a hundred of them no to edit no, i'm talking about one yeah but eight terabytes of memory people just have you seen how much memory video uncompressed high def video takes have you seen Nah, uh, eight terabytes. 
Yeah, well, good luck. That's a lot. Good luck putting eight terabytes of RAM on your machine. Good luck with that. I built a ten terabyte array, but that was using hard drives a wee bit slower. A wee bit slower. Flash flash drives, though, I think maybe will blur the line between RAM and uh, and hard disks. Maybe we don't even need that much RAM if we have really fast, you know, non mechanical electronic hard drives. What is that going to do? That is interesting. I don't know. Um, I've given that a little bit of thought, and uh, I do think that solid-state drives are very cool. They save a lot of battery power, mm. keep the machine cooler. Safer. There's a lot of benefit that comes from that. Yeah, but what, um, and what if your swap space was as fa- almost as fast as your internal memory? Right. Yeah, that's that could change things yeah. <laughs> in a pretty dramatic way. Um, I don't know. That would be exciting. Yes, it would. And it also... Take uh, well, you you're right. It would change things in a very dramatic way for lots of reasons. Memory management. Oh man, I I'm trying to think and talk at the same time. It's not working. <laughs> All right, Jeff. Always good to talk yeah. to you. Well, same here. Thanks for educating us. Uh, always glad to help. <laughs> and we'll see Bye. you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com Got a van by the FCC Yes, I'm a dog